Hi, this is Ray Barry, and welcome to the Audio Wave Cafe podcast. On this episode, my guest is John Hewitt, one-time drummer with King, one of Compton's top 80s bands. He'll be talking about the highs and lows of his music career. First, I talk about NFTs. What are they? I didn't have a clue. And I'll be shining a spotlight on the first school of rock, and it's only minutes from where I live. I'll also be playing Moving to the Rhythm by Coventry Soul Band Team 23, recorded more than 40 years ago. That's scary. Anyhow, let's move on. Where do I start? I was slightly regretting choosing NFTs as a topic. It's digital technology, and it doesn't sit that easy with me. So forgive me for not going into the technicalities of MetaMask wallets, blockchains, and other such terminology. NFT stands for Non-Fungible Token. It's a digital certificate of authenticity. And when you buy one, it's digital proof that you and only you own it. Your NFT can't be replicated. But let's say you're the owner of an NFT of a digital piece of art. Let's say a cat. No one will ever take it off you unless you sell it. But if you display it on your website... There's nothing stopping someone from copying it and displaying it on their website. So while you're bragging to anyone who will listen that you own an NFT of a cute cat, others on the web have copied your cute cat and also bragging about how stupid you are. And there's nothing you can do about it. From what I can see, there are a lot of clever people not just selling art and other stuff, but music as well. Wiley old Snoop Dogg in February this year sold more than $44 million worth of his so-called Stashbox NFTs using music taken off his BODR album. These stash boxes also contain non-digital goodies. I can't say how that works, but those stash boxes sold for $5,000 each. You gotta love Snoop Dogg. I have though checked out Milo Lombardi, an Italian sax player. He has a website, niftysax.com. He is selling short improvisational pieces played on his sax. On his website, he states, creating music on the blockchain with my sax is a culmination of my career as an artist. Well, you know, there could be some mileage in this NFT stuff. NFTs are the latest fad that many in the music business say can only grow over the coming years. If you're an independent artist or band with a following, I can see NFTs as another possible income stream. Type in LimeWire in Google search and check out the service they are launching this year in the UK. In fact, do a Google search on anything to do with NFTs and music. Learn all about it. Then you can make an informed choice if it's something you want to take further. And as NFTs are attracting big money, it's also very appealing to all the tricky scammers out there. So be careful. My guest today is John Hewitt, probably best remembered as a drummer in Coventry's top 80s band King. But for more than 10 years, he's been playing soul and Motown favourites in one of the Midlands' premier bands, Soul Junction. John, thanks for joining me in my studio. Hi, Ray. You're welcome. It's my studio. There's only a couple of mics and a little recorder and a couple of chairs. <laughs> <laughs> John, you formed your first band with Stig Foster in 1976 called Solid Grease. What kind of music did you play? It was just basically self-written pop songs. Um, I wrote some of the lyrics, unfortunately. But, um, yeah, it was just pop songs, because we were fairly inexperienced players who so were just messing about, really, and throwing ideas together. 
And then we um, we did that for a while. And then we changed the name to The Fuse and then we changed the name to Blown Fuse in 1979. Uh, it's always a story about this because I actually, I actually put a poster on the um, one of the toilets for Blown Fuse playing at this gig and the, cle- the cleaner wouldn't clean the toilets out because she thought there's a blown fuse in the actual cupboard. That's true, that is. We then uh, we added Mick Gallick, who um, went on to play with Dexys and Night Runners and also played with us later in Team 23. You then went on to play with several bands, including The End. You played drums on Panic in the Night, a song by the band which ended up on the compilation album sent to Coventry. Do you have any standout memories of that period? I do indeed, yes. Um, we supported... Um, God's Toys at the, the uh, Music Machine. It's, it went on to be called the Camden Palace. I think it's called Coco now. Uh, anyway, we supported them, and I was going down the landing, and I jumped up and banged my head, and ended up in hospital with stitches. And so I had to stay in London that night. So that was a bit of a thing. Also, the um, yeah, around that period when we'd done the um, the Panic in the Night off the scent from Commonwealth. Uh, when we was on the radio, it's fantastic. That's probably one of my outstanding memories of that period. Did you make any money out of that? We didn't, know. Um, I think whatever money was um, made went back into like the record company. It was Cathedral Records was involved. Um, so we never got any royalties or anything off it. It did actually chart. I think it got into a lot of the local charts. But um, whatever money there was, I think it just went back to whoever paid for the recording and everything like that. Later then helped form Soul Band Team 23 with, among others, Graham Smith and Jerome Heisler. Was that the kind of music that interested you? Uh, not really, not at all, because at that p- particular period, um, I was into, like, new wave and punk. So, like, soul was, where's that come from? What did you join the band then? Well, we, I, was, I was in the end with um, Jerome and Adrian, and he just said one day... I want to form a soul band. And he said, what do you think? I said, well, I don't know. And then he give me a load of soul albums. And he said, well, we're, we're going to get Dave Pepper and Graham Smith out of the excerpts. Right. Uh, so the five of us formed this band and we just took it from there, really. I'd, I'd no sort of soul aspirations, you might say. I mean, I was into bands like Squeeze and Clash, Ian Jory, Buscocks, Undertone, Sex Pistols. And I, I was lucky I managed to see them all. So, you know, this to learn like Tamil and Motown drumming was a completely new way of thinking for me. But, you know, we started to go from playing the so- um, the end songs and excerpt songs and making them into soul songs, uh, a synthesizer to do the brass. And then we added the brass a bit later on. That's interesting stuff to me. I've ever played in a band with it that's got brass. Yeah. Went from like a, uh, Adrian playing the. The brass parts um, on the synthesizer, and then um, Jerome decided that we we're going to have a, a trumpet player and a sax player. And Dave Pepper didn't like it; he didn't, he didn't want to do with brass. He didn't, he didn't like the idea of brass, so he left. So we got Jim Lansbury in later of King, all that sort of thing. Uh, so Jimmy replaced Dave Pepper, and we got Lynn Thompson and Roy Wall to do the brass parts. Um, that was about the April of 1980. John Bradbury of the Specials paid for and produced a single for the band called Moving to the Rhythm. Now, you must have thought the future was looking up for the band. I did, yeah. I thought we were, I thought we were really going places. Um, we released Moving to the Rhythm. Um, that was about December 
1981. Then we recorded an EP on the Rolling Stones mobile studios. Um, Brad paid for that again. Um, we was headlining things like that, you know, London, Ding Walls, them sort of places. And we'd just done the specials tour in the October of 1980. So it was all really going really well. And then Lynn and Roy decided to leave in the March, which was pretty devastating. So we had to replace them with um, the Swinging Laurels, who was uh, involved in Fun Boy 3 a bit later on. The, the Telephone Always Ring single, 1982, yeah. with Terry and everything. Then the band actually split. That particular whole band then just split in April of 1981. Um, and then we reformed with Mick Gallick, who was in Blown Fuse with me, um, and later on in Dexys, we'd come on Eileen. And we did one gig. We did rehearse for six months. That was me, Jim. Uh, we got Lynn Thompson back involved again. Um, Jimmy did the singing. And then we had Pete Rowland, who was our manager, who brought his brother down, Kevin, to rehearsal. So we were thinking, oh, we're going to do, a, we're going to get some tours and gigs out of this. So he all goes up to the Rocket Pub in Coventry, has a drink and everything, and turned a few heads and stuff. Next thing you know, Mick says, oh, uh, I'm joining Dexys. And I went, oh. And it was a bit of a shock because I thought, oh, Kevin's going to give us some support or whatever. But he didn't. He'd come down to our rehearsal to basically poach Mick. He thought, I can't believe this is happening. So uh, we did one gig at the um, Sportsman's Arms in Coventry, and that went down the storm that day. That was... I mean, we could have done residency out of that. So when after that, when oh, I had to, we had to tell everybody that Mick's leaving, he's joining Dexys. So Jim, that was it. He just went and joined Paul King because the rups and stereotypes had split up. Jim and Lynn joined, well, they were raw screens before King. Uh, we tried to replace Jim, it was impossible. And we swapped bass players. We had Steve Wynn and Dexys had Mick Gallick. So it was a basic swap for rehearsal, but it never went anywhere. We we did one silly gig in a in a, a school, I think, but it never we never got anywhere again. So the band completely split by that particular time, which was about September nineteen eighty one. Why was it uh, impossible to replace Jim? I don't know. It's just his style of guitar, and and uh, it's just some people. I don't think you can replace. He's he's you know he he was just the band. I thought he's such a slick style of playing. We just couldn't get... We got other people in, they just couldn't cut the mustard. When he replaced Dave Pepper in Team 23, Dave was more rocky, I think, at that time. And then Jim just was... Oh, just a lovely style. Just a different style, basically, but a lovely style. If you listen to his guitar and I'm moving to the rhythm, you can... There's a little... I think it's in the middle eight part. You can hear Jimmy playing. It's lovely, you know. So to try and get somebody to replicate that was impossible right and i will be playing that song later on in the podcast right i've seen a record cover where the artwork is by stonky that's you isn't it it certainly is i don't i don't know where the nickname came from but i know graham smith gave it to me um you'd have to ask him about that um it's quite a cheeky name really isn't it but it's good. Yeah, are you a bit of an artist there? I am, yeah, yeah. So I basically did that sleeve just because um, when John Bradbury paid for it, he didn't he didn't do a picture sleeve. Yeah, he did for the next band, I can't remember what they're called. I think he did about four records on race label, but he didn't do one for the Team 23, so I thought, well, I'll do my own then. So I did that sleeve, and I just looked like photocopied 
or whatever, future ones and ended up all over the world, in Japan and America and everything. I didn't do it for that purpose. I just did it to sort of spruce my own copy up (laughs) (laughs) and just a few friends and stuff. In 1982, you and and Jerome Heisler then formed Golden Age. Was that a punk band? No, it wasn't. It was um, nothing at all like punk or soul or anything. Jerome had just completely gone off the soul stuff and Team 23 and of Dex's sort of band idea. He'd gone to more like um, post-punk new wave, like bands like Japan. Not quite Duran Duran or Spandau Bally, but more um, slowishy Japan stuff. And I didn't really enjoy it, to be honest with you. It was a bit, a bit weird, you know. Nothing like Team 23 or anything like that. Japan, they were a unique band. Yeah, they were. They're, they're quite slow in their melodies, weren't they? It was just slowy stuff, slow and uh, atmospheric. Didn't mind the atmospheric much stuff so much, but the songs were a bit not my cup of tea, basically. In 1983, Paul King asked you to join King, where you replaced sack drummer Colin Heans. What did you feel about joining King at the time? To be honest with you, I wasn't too keen because um, I'd seen him as uh, raw screams, um, and there were... It was like doing all like Peter Gabriel theatrical stuff. So the songs are only in their like infancy then. I don't even think they'd done written Love and Pride or anything like that. But I knew Jim Lansbury from Team 23 and I knew Mick Roberts from various bands, the MPs and stuff. So I knew them too fairly well. I didn't really know Tony Wall um, very well, to be honest with you. So anyway, I said, okay, then I'll just give it a try. Because I was, I was in... Um, the Shakers with John Thompson at the time. I'd only been with them about two or three months and done a demo and that. So I thought, well, I've got nothing to lose, really. I even said, I phoned Mick Gallic up. I said, what do you think about it? He said, well, you've got nothing to lose, really, have you? You know, Paul King's just come out of the rooks in stereotypes, doing this raw screens thing. And you know, you know Jim, you know Mick. So I just went along to rehearsal. Did an audition. Um, I think he gave me some cassette tapes and I learnt them as best I could and he gave me a week to get the set together and then I played Warwick University then within a week so I got I was in the papers about it saying I've done it in a week which was quite pleasing you know In March 84 the band went into the studio to record Love and Pride but the session didn't go well it said that there were drumming issues what's that all about? Well we were signed to CBS um, who signed about three bands a year I mean they signed Fiction and Factory and somebody else in the fine the sign king um they seemed to be more interested in wham because when i went down to the to sign the contract and everything down in london it was just wham everywhere all posters everywhere so all the cbs was playing the money into into them yeah and then unfortunately we got a um, our record producer was richard burgess who was a was a drummer he played with landscape einstein a go-go that sort of thing he'd just done spandau ballet chant number one and um, Adamant's album Strip or something but he was a bit of a, a drum perfectionist four hours or five hours just setting my mics up and putting sheets around my drum kit which I've never experienced before you know sheets all around the bass drum overhead mics there must have been about 20 or 25 microphones around the drum kit and it was only a four piece drum kit as well seriously yeah um, so um, it was it was costing CBS a lot of money, and they were all CBS were already moaning about costs because we was using taxis around London. Um, they stopped us doing that and made me walk everywhere. Uh, and then the food at the hotel because we were staying at the Columbia Hotel in uh, Knightsbridge, 
Um, and I said to Paul King one day, I said, well, we'll have kippers for breakfast and things like that and real, really expensive breakfasts and dinners and everything. And the next thing we know, CBS are having to go at us. And so, was, you know, they were just really being tight about everything. Well, they wanted you to have a bacon sarnie, for God's sake. Yeah, I know. I mean, I mean, I, was, I don't know whether Paul King still got the taxis, but I certainly didn't. I wanted to walk everywhere. But, um, yeah, they were really um, cutting the costs and everything. But I heard that Richard Burgess was getting quite a good pay per day, though, being the record producer. I was told that a single cost 10 grand and the drums cost four grand. Well, <laughs> what? you spent so much detail getting the drums sounding right. January 1984, it was done. Uh, at Trident Studios in London. That's where, Do- that's where Bowie um, did all his early Bowie stuff and Queen did some of the Queen stuff there. Nice being in the studio where they'd been. And the piano that we used on Love and Pride was the piano that he used on a lot of Bowie stuff and Queen stuff, I think. It's the same piano. And it, you had to tune it every day or so. It goes out of tune. You said you had your picture erased from the single's picture sleeve. I've also seen the video produced for Love and Pride. There is no drummer in it. I'd like you to comment on the fact that you were being sidelined. It upset me pretty badly, to be honest with you, because um, I was been photographed in Record Mirror and um, I just played on the single and everything. I, I seemed to go from being a band member to a session player, as if um, and they never used drummers on any of the videos as well. It seemed, to be honest with you, it all just seemed about Paul, which sort of made sense in the end because the band was called King. And uh, it really annoyed me a little bit because I'd, I'd done... I'd done gigs, tours, and then toured with them for uh, quite a long time. I did live TV, Italian TV, doing fish, um, three weeks in band studios doing all the demos, another studio doing demos, Radio 1 sessions. And then Paul just says, oh, well, you're just the drummer, um, which was not very nice, is it? You know. Um, but I always knew that CBS and um, Perry Haynes, I thought, you know, I think they were aiming Paul to be the next sex symbol to front the band. So I'd, I'd become a drummer into a session player, really. And I'd signed a record contract as well. That seems uh, grossly unfair to me. Yeah, it was. You then took about a 10-year break from drumming. Why was that? Well, I was totally disillusioned from, you know, the music business. I just didn't want to play anymore, basically. What did you do uh, in that 10-year period? I mean, nothing, really. I mean, uh, Terry Hall asked me to join um, the Colour Field later in 84, but... I thought, well, it's quite depressing stuff when I heard the demo tapes. I did meet them all. Nothing came of it. Do you receive royalties full of them, Pride? Well, thankfully I do, because in the current climate with this gas, electric and petrol, <laughs> I've set up a direct debit from uh, PPL to uh, EDF. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I've just... Oh, any money I get, I said, well, don't, don't give it to me. Just send it straight to EDF or BP. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I do, yeah, thankfully. It's not a massive amount, but it's it's nice, you know, four times a year. As you say, it helps pay the gas bills. I guess it pays the gas bill. I ain't going to worry about the gas bill. <laughs> oh, dear. But, uh, yeah. In 2011, together with Debt Burn, you helped form an eyepiece band, Soul Junction, which you're still playing in today. Are you back playing the music you love? Oh, definitely, yeah. I mean, the thing is, um, I'd done the um, uh, Guinness Book of Records thing in 2009, I'd um, 600 drummers at the NIA, certificate and everything. So I hadn't planned to really play again. I thought, well, I'll just do that. And then Deck phoned me up on um, late in 2011, he was. Uh, and I was, he was in Team 20, he was in the, the second mark, Team 23. Obviously, playing back to the soul stuff again was, was uh, great. John, it's been a long journey with many highs and lows. What are you most proud of? Probably playing on Love and Pride, if I can 
put it in a nutshell, really. I mean, it's such a, you know, monster hit and was a hit all over the world. Uh, I never would have dreamt 10 years before when I was a school kid I'd be doing anything like this. Well, you were definitely in the right place at the right time. John, that was a fascinating session. Thanks very much. Cheers, right. School of Rock was a 2003 film starring Jack Black. There's a rumour that the film's producers had modelled their film on the School of Rock music based in Philadelphia. Now, I've been living in rugby for more than 30 years, and it's only a few years ago that I discovered that probably the world's first School of Rock was actually based just up the road from my home. In 1962, Reg Calvert, former popcorn seller, opened the School of Rock and Roll in Clifton Pond Dunsmore in the early 60s. His dream was to nurture his own stable of future rock and roll stars, after being inspired by Rock Around the Clock by Bill Haley and the Comets. Clifton Hall was a large house in its own grounds. It was here that 20 or so young musicians would practice to reach the level of professionalism required by Reg to play in dance halls and package tours, performing Elvis Presley and Buddy Holly hits, and some, like Pinkerton's Assorted Colours, The Fortunes, and Danny Storm and the Strollers, went on to achieve commercial success. It was at Clifton Hall that the groups would practice and also relax around a billiards table or go horse riding and archery, but booze and girls were strictly forbidden, and did that work out for them. The school continued for a few years until Reg Calvert sold Clifton Hall to finance buying a pirate radio station. Unfortunately, Reg was shot to death by a rival radio station owner. He was survived by his daughter, Susan Moore. She has published several books about the School of Rock and the pirate radio stations. She's also an accomplished artist and has her own studio in Philongley, north of Coventry. You can find Honest Idea by Danny Storm and Strollers on YouTube. There's one video with a group actually playing the song at Clifton Hall. By the way, Danny Storm, I believe you're out there somewhere. I'd love it if you got in touch. If there is any building that deserves a blue plaque to commemorate its status as the first school of rock, then it should be Clifton Hall. I believe Beatles even visited the place, but they had their apprenticeship, as George Harrison would say, in the sweaty, seedy nightclubs of Hamburg. And I'm damn sure there's a lot of booze and girls there. Coming up is a song by Team 23, recorded in 1981 at UK Pro and The Point Studios London, produced by John Bradbury, drummer with the specials, with Jim Lansbury, guitar vocals, Jerome Heisler, lead vocals, John Hewitt, drums, Lynn Thompson, trumpet, Roy Wall, sax, and Adrian Vaughan, organ, written by Graham Summers, moving to the rhythm. Finish 
I'd like to give a mention to the Coventry Music Museum run by Peace and Julie Chambers, which I believe is an integral part of the Coventry music scene. They have brought together under one roof assorted music memorabilia going as far back as the 1950s, and not just related to Coventry but also other local towns. Although part of the two-term village, the museum is not a two-term museum, as more than 50% of it caters to non-scar-related displays. Open 30 to Sunday is an independent museum run by unpaid volunteers. It operates by way of donations, grants and a small entrance fee. I've been there a few times, there's a warm ambience about the place. The volunteers are there to help with any questions, and Pete's always up for a chat. There are also other music-related events throughout the year, just check on the website. Many times I've ended my visit with a coffee at the Two-Tone Cafe. Yep, always an enjoyable few hours, check it out. Many thanks again to my guest, John Hewitt. On the next podcast, my guest will be Carrie Reichardt. She's the artist who created the Scarred for Life mural at Paul Meadow Bus Station, Coventry. I'll also be talking about racism in music, and I'll shine a spotlight on Coventry band The Selector. Look out for podcast number six, released on Sunday the 29th of May. Uh, I think that's it. Yep, I'm done. Till next time. <laughs>